0: They're finding their seats. Open your your Bibles to the Book of Acts. We're gonna be looking at Acts chapter four, verse verses thirty two. We're gonna go all the way into chapter five through verse eleven. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostle's feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came upon all upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things that sends our reading of god's piercing word may all who hear it understand the frightening nature that is our god The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes and to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. This is just a tiny portion of Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's said that that before he had even finished his message that many of the people who were in attendance that day began moaning and, and shaking in their pews. And then there were others who began crying out to Jesus, pleading for help. Now, now why would they do this? What what would cause them to act in such a manner? Because their consciences had been pierced as the terror of a holy God had fallen upon them. (laughs) When Jonathan finished his sermon, he he ended it with these words. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. Our passage for today is not an easy one, it's not full of sunshine and rainbows. But it it begins a a new chapter in the history of the early church, in in the works of the Holy Spirit. If you remember the section before, the focus was on God's sovereignty. The verses we cover today will focus on God's holiness. It will focus on his justice, his omniscience. Luke not only wants to demonstrate to us that that God is not only all-knowing, but more importantly, that he is the Holy One, the one who is to be feared. And this is important. We don't often talk about the fear of God, but we should. Well, let's see how this is laid out. Look, look at the first few verses. Look at verses 32 through 35 in chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now now we have seen beforehand in the book of Acts that this early church had this unified spirit, have we not? That not only... Did they have a unified faith and commitment to Jesus Christ, but they, but they were also unified in their dedication to one another? If you remember, it was back in chapter 2 that Luke had informed us that these believers held everything in common, that they sold properties and possessions in order that they might give to anyone who had need. This sentiment is now reiterated and thus reinforced in our text for today. As Luke tells us that, that they were of one heart and soul. That, that, that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And, and it is because of this unselfish attitude that we read the words that there was not a needy person among them. Now now there is good reason that Luke is once again bringing this fact to light. For for it will have great bearing on what is about to take place. And yet before we get there, there there is another detail that, that Luke has inserted into this text that we should not ignore. And that is that these apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and that great grace was upon them all. Now if you remember from last week there there had been a ban that had been placed on preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had told both Peter and John you are not to speak in this man's name anymore. And yet this ban did not slow down these apostles they continued to speak the name of the resurrected Messiah in order that many more may enter in to God's salvation. And so the gospel was being proclaimed even still. Now, now you may be asking yourselves, what, what do these two things have in common? What, what does the preaching of the gospel have to do with the sharing of possessions and taking care of the poorest among you? Why is Luke putting these two things together? I'm glad you asked. What, what Luke is demonstrating here is that is that the kingdom of God it, it functions on multiple levels, right? And that when rightly understood, these, these levels they actually support one another. You see, when you, when you put these two things together, both, both the generous hearts of the believers as well as the courage of, of these gospel witnesses, what, what, what you see being demonstrated here is a church that is being faithful to the calling that had been given to them. For what is the gospel message other than an invitation into God's kingdom? A kingdom where, where, where those who used to be enemies of God now find themselves as God's children. And thus every man and woman and child have now become brothers and sisters in Jesus. And what kind of brother leaves another sibling in poverty when he has the means to lift him out? And so these two things, they go hand in hand, do they Not? The fact that that these believers were looking out for one another only helped to reinforce the truth of the gospel that they were preaching. And we have to look no further than verses 36 and 37 before Luke gives us an example of such generosity, of such a gospel witness. Look at these verses. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now I think it is very fitting that the apostles gave to this Joseph a new name. They called him Barnabas, right? Son of encouragement. And it's in this passage where we see the encouragement that he brought. This, this Levite, this man from Cyprus, sold, sold a field that he had owned, laid the, the earnings that he made at the apostles' feet where it would be distributed to the poor among them. You see, what Luke is doing here is he is establishing this man as an example of the kind of selfless generosity that was taking place in the early church. Barnabas, this son of encouragement, was was more concerned about the well-being of his brothers and sisters in Christ than he was about his own worldly wealth. It's been said before, and I don't know where I heard this, but I've heard this before, that if, if you want to look at how healthy a church truly is, then look to its weakest members and see how they are treated this will tell you everything about that church's commitment to Christ. You see, this this commitment to Christ is also a commitment to one another, is it not? It's shown by a demonstration of lifting one another up. Not because we have to. Not because we we have something to gain from doing so, but because we have a genuine love for those whom we call family. And this is why this Joseph was honored with the name of Barnabas, son of encouragement, for he truly was an encouragement to the whole of the church. And yet Luke doesn't include this account of Barnabas for the sole purpose of, of his godly example. Rather, Luke wants to contrast what true generosity looks like to the examples that we will see next. For what we are about to witness is a husband and a wife who will demonstrate a giving of a different kind. A giving that has nothing to do with brotherly love. A giving that does not support the gospel message, but rather takes from it. Look at at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here we see this couple who who sold a piece of property and and yet they had conspired with one another. In order to deceive the church, they had decided to keep back a portion of this earnings for themselves. And yet, they wanted to have that same recognition like men like Joseph had, who had been given the name of Barnabas. They wanted to be seen as these other men who had given fully. Now, now now think about this. This was a calculated public attempt to appear more righteous than, than one really is. The, the, this was an effort by Ananias and Sapphira to make the church think that, that they were a more spiritual couple than they really were. In essence, what we have taking place here is, is a couple who loved prestige. The prestige that came from giving. And they loved this prestige more than they they loved the people to whom they were giving. Their desire to be noticed outweighed their desire to do what was right. Let me ask you, what, what is it that motivates you to do the things that you do? Why do you do the, the good deeds that, that God has placed before you? Are they done out of a pure love for others? Or are there ulterior motives that lie underneath? Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. It says this. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, even in our good deeds, even in our shining moments, we are, we are filled with sinful motives. They're like filthy rags. Even at our best, we have transgressed our God. And this is exactly what we see in this Ananias and Sapphira. Their seemingly good work was nothing but a farce. And yet these two thought that they could get away with it. They they, they thought that they could deceive the church in order to gain recognition. And yet God would not allow that. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contri- contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Here we see four questions as well as a proclamation that Peter puts forth to this Ananias. Four questions and a proclamation that cut to the heart of the matter. But before we take a closer look at those, let's let's first consider how Peter came to the conclusions that he did. I mean, it's, it's almost as if Peter had the ability to, to peer right into this man's heart and see the wickedness that was within. Now, what's going on here? How did Peter do that? What's going on is that God had given to Peter the gift of prophecy. The, the Holy Spirit was revealing to Peter things that only the omniscient God could possibly know. And this was done in order that God might communicate clearly through Peter exactly what he wanted to communicate, not only to Ananias, but to the church as a whole. I mean, think about think about the prophets of old and the words that God had given to them. What, what was God's purpose in their messages? For the most part... God was either bringing a word of judgment or a word of comfort. Judgment for the sinner and comfort for the oppressed. Comfort for those who had humbled themselves. What are the words that we see here? We see words of judgment Let's take a closer look at these words. Look at look at the first of these four questions. Question number 1. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, there's a lot that is going on in this question, not the least of which is this assertion that that Satan had filled Ananias' heart. Now, why would Peter say this? Because the sin that Peter was confronting was the sin of lying. And Satan is the father of lies, is he not? Look at John chapter 8, verse 44. These are the words of our Lord. He says this, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so this Ananias was following the ways of Satan. He he spoke lies rather than the truth. This is what Peter meant that when he said that Satan had filled his heart to lie. But to whom did he lie? What did Peter say? He lied to the Holy Spirit. How is this the case? Wasn't the a lie to the apostles and, and to the church? Yeah. But that's just it. For, for, for the church, who, who is the church? The church is made up of those who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And, and so this lie wasn't a lie to the people alone, but it was a lie to God as well. Dear friends, I don't care how sneaky you are or how good of a poker face you might have. You you cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. You you cannot deceive God. God is omniscient. I've used this word earlier. Let, Let me define it to you. God knows everything, right? He knows all. And so you cannot manipulate him. I mean, think about this. This is who he lied to, or he tried to lie to. Well, we know who he lied to, but the question is, why did he lie, right? I mean, people don't just lie for lying's sake. There's always a reason behind the lie. For Ananias, it was because of what that lie meant, And this is revealed in Peter's next two questions. Look at at question number two. While it remained unsold, did it not not remain your own? In this question, Peter reveals an important fact to us. and And that fact is this, that Ananias was under no compulsion to sell his land. He could have kept it. And if he did kept it, no one would have thought any less of him. But more than that, even even after he sold it, there was still no obligation for him to give away any of that money. Look at at Peter's next question. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You see, Ananias could have given any portion of this money that he had chosen. He he could have given half of it. He, He could have given a quarter of it. And if he had done so, it would have still been seen as a generous gift. And so the sin wasn't that he kept some back. No, the the sin was that he chose to lie about the amount. But why did he choose to lie about the amount? Because of the prestige that came with being seen as a sacrificial giver. And therein lies the root of the issue. Ananias wasn't giving out of a love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. No. He he was giving out of a love for himself. He he wanted to be seen as as some sacrificial superhero. He wanted to be lauded and and praised like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And, And so the purpose behind his giving It wasn't to provide for the church, but to be praised by the church. And this leads into Peter's last question. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? This is pretty much a repeat of Peter's first question, only this time Peter places the emphasis that this wicked desire had its origins within this man's own heart. Now now these questions that Peter had given they they were rhetorical in nature right they they weren't meant to be answered they were meant to expose the wickedness that was within this man and exposed he was and yet it was in in this final condemning statement that Peter gave that must that must have sent us a, a, a terrifying shiver down the spine of Ananias You have not lied to man, but to God. For the second time, Peter has now revealed to this man that the lie that he had told, it was not a lie to man, but a lie to God. I don't know what goes through your mind when you hear that. But to me, that's terrifying. Look at at Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. It says this, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. When you look at this list, Ananias was guilty of at least six of the seven. And yet he thought he could get away with these things with the slip of a tongue. I mean, after all, it was just a little white lie. And yet, what does God say about these little white lives? That he hates them. That they are an abomination to him. You see, often we we, we fail to understand just how holy God truly is. We, we, we try to measure him by, by our fallen human standards. Sure, we, we think of him as good. But, but we use a goodness that is tainted. And yes, we think of him as just, but, but we use a justice that is incomplete. We, we tend to compare him to this, this wise human judge, right, who's, who's sitting aloft on his bench, donning his black robe and, and having his gavel in hand, deciding the fate of, of wicked, wicked men, right? But what we don't understand is that in God's courtroom, that same wise judge whom we esteem would be cast with the same lot as those wicked wicked men. He would be found guilty and tossed into the pits of hell. And that's because we don't understand how wicked we truly are. We don't understand that that that, that a little white lie is an abomination. It is a detestable thing. Here's the thing, by by doing what he did, Ananias took something that was beautiful, something that was glorious, and he sullied it. He turned the spirit of giving into a game, something that was to be done in order to win the favor of men. And by doing such a thing, it put a black mark upon the gospel message. And God would not have it. You see, by giving for the sake of prestige and not out of a love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, he was trying to create two categories of Christians, right? Those who were sacrificial and then, and then all the rest. And so his lie was driven by his own pride. And yet God was not fooled. He had revealed to his apostle Peter what was within this man's heart. And now this was revealed to Ananias as well. What would God's judgment be? Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. This sudden death, this is nothing other than the judgment of God. Is this judgment too harsh? What say you? Is death the right punishment for a a little lie? Okay, maybe it was a big lie, but but did Ananias deserve to die for simply fibbing about the price at which he sold his land? What say you? Look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Let's jump back in time a little bit. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And here we see an example of an act of worship that was not held in reverence. Nadab and Abihu, these two sons of Aaron, brought forward unauthorized fire before the Lord, and God judged them for that. Because they drew near to God by means other than they were instructed, they fell dead. Look at 2 Samuel 6, verses 5 through 7. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Here we once again see an act of irreverence done during a time of worship. I think about this, this, this Uzzah. What happened to him? He, he, he saw the, the Ark of the Covenant falling to the ground, and what did he do? And what would anybody do? He, he instinctively reached out his hand to secure it before it hit the ground. That's all he did. And yet, why was the ark carried on poles in the first place? Because it was God's throne. And it could not be touched by human hands. Now, now what is the common thread between these three stories? Between Uzzah and, and Aaron's sons and Ananias? They all have to do with the worship of God. And in each of these stories, there was an irreverence in their worship. With with Uzzah, it was by placing his hand upon the ark, something that he could not do. With the sons of Aaron, it, it was by offering this strange fire that they had concocted. And with Ananias it was by lying to God about his offering in order to seek praise of men. And so in each of these three stories, God had cast his swift judgment as he struck dead each offender. Now, now, Now listen, God had every right to smite these men, even if their sins wouldn't have been done during an act of worship. And that's because every sin that we commit is worthy of death. And yet God had chosen these particular moments in order to communicate something to his people. Something about himself. And that something is that he is holy. That he is a terrifying God and his name will not be dishonored. Look at the rest of verse 5 from our passage in Acts. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Great fear came upon all who heard it. This this fear that is described here, this wasn't some sort of Reverent awe that we talk about in the Old Testament. Rather, this is a genuine terror that these people felt, knowing that the God that they were serving wasn't fooling around. I mean, I can only imagine some of the thoughts that were running around their heads. If God is willing to take the life of this man for simply not telling the truth, now what about the sins that I have committed? You see, this death of Ananias, it, it, it took the reality of God's judgment and it shoved it in their faces. It, it was like this, this glaring neon sign, right, that read, this is a holy God whom you worship. A God who hates sin and will not hesitate to bring about his judgment. Now as Christians, we, we often talk about how God is merciful, about how He is full of grace, and and He is. He truly is. But what we learn about God in this passage is that He is under no obligation to hold back His wrath. And when it comes to how how He will be worshipped, how He will be worshipped in His church, He will not allow His name to be sullied. You see, there was more at stake than just the soul of Ananias. What was at stake was the soul of the church. What was at stake was the heart of the gospel. Would the church become just another place where we once again fall under the sin of Adam? Where the pride of man becomes what motivates our actions? Where we once once again categorize one another according to what we do? Or would the church remain a family? A family of brothers and sisters in Christ. A family where every life is valuable. And where Jesus is king. And worshipped with reverent fear. Well, this... Ananias was quickly and unceremoniously buried by these young men in the church. But before these men even had a chance to return, we see another character enter the picture. Look at at verses 7 and 8. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Ananias' wife, Sapphira, had finally entered the picture. Now, where she had been, we, we don't know. But what we do know is that she had conspired with her husband and that she knew that her husband had already laid at the apostles' feet the money that they had chosen to give and so that I'm sure when she had entered in, she, she was probably expecting some type of warm greeting. A greeting that might have been filled with gratitude and, if not, admiration. And yet when she joined the congregation, she was instead questioned by Peter. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. A simple yes or no was all that was needed. You see, what Peter was doing is, was he was allowing her one opportunity to both confess and repent. He, he was showing mercy to this woman that she might not suffer the same fate as her husband. And yet, unfortunately, this woman's pride was too great. She missed her opportunity to make right the wrong that she had done. And she answered, yes, for so much. Look at verses 9 and 10. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Again, Peter stressed that it's not just to the church whom she had lied to, but to the Holy Spirit. In her desire for prestige and status, she believed that she could get away with deceptive. Deception. And once again, God was not fooled. And Peter then revealed to her. He told her, the judgment that fell upon your husband will now be the same judgment that will fall upon you. And then just like her husband, she immediately fell dead. These young men who had just spent three hours burying her husband, now I had to go about that same task once again. But again, the, the, the question arises in our own hearts, isn't that? Isn't this too harsh? Is this justice? Perhaps that's the wrong question to be asking. Perhaps the question we should be asking is, why are the rest of us still standing? Look at at our last verse. Look at verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Once again... Luke is stressing the point that that the whole church was terrified. But not just the church, but but everyone who had heard about what had happened. Basically, God God had placed this terror upon the whole city of Jerusalem. For for the people, they they not only knew about these two deaths, but, but they had understood the meaning behind these deaths. That it was the judgment of God. Why did they have so much fear? Why, why was there so much dread? Might I, might I suggest to you that the deaths of both Ananias and Sapphira had caused everyone else to take a hard look in the mirror. For, for if God could judge a man so harshly for something that they would have considered not such a big deal, then what would he do with them once he had peered into their hearts? (laughs) Listen, what what Ananias and Sapphira did was wrong. But but tell me this, can, can you look at your own life and say that you are any better? I mean, how many times have you stretched the truth in order to prop yourself up? How many times have you told that little white lie in service of your own pride? I mean, we've all done it. I'm just as guilty. And how many of you can say that your worship of God is pure? That when you come through those doors each and every Sunday that you have left your ego at the door and that you're worshiping God in only spirit and in truth? Or how many of you only come to church when it's convenient for you? As if God doesn't deserve your worship each and every Sunday. He deserves our worship each and every day. Again, it's it's attitudes like this that, that That demonstrate to us that we have made worship about us and not about Him. Dear friends, it's it's only by the mercy of God that any of us are still standing here today. And that's because God is holy and we are not. God is holy. And he is to be feared. And that is why we look to the Son. That is why we look to Jesus and to his righteousness. For it's only through him that we have any hope, any hope of drawing near to God. It's only through his death, his atoning death for our sins, that, that we can be seen in God's eyes As clean. For only when we put on His righteousness, not our own, but His righteousness, that we can enter into God's presence. And this fact should humble us, and it should strip us of our pride. For, for even though we, we, we are not worthy, God, for some reason, has, has chosen to welcome us into his house. Even though our good deeds are like filthy rags, God, God has, has chosen to adopt us as his children. Isn't that crazy to think about? There's nothing about us That that, that speaks that we deserve this. We don't. And yet we're here. We are before our God. And we're still breathing. That in itself is a miracle. So let our worship of Him be about His glory and not our own. Let us fear the Lord with a reverent heart. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we confess to you this day that that our hearts are not right. Too often we we come to you with without without proper fear. We, we think lightly of your holiness and we think even less of our own sin. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to change our ways that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. We cannot do this in our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit. And we need the mercy that comes to us from the cross of Christ. Let us not be struck down by our own pride, but let us look to Jesus and find forgiveness through him. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.